You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I do hope you'll stay with me for the next hour with a musician who has become very special to the show. The dark days of January are almost behind us and with them the hibernation of most of the arts. Even in a non-pandemic year, arts events are always thin on the ground for the first few weeks. And I am happy to say that in spite of us still being unable to gather together, just like years past, the arts in February are picking up speed. This weekend, Greenhouse Theatre Project opens its new Zoom-formatted production, the world premiere of Nothing Can Stop What Is Coming, a political dramedy which takes us behind the screens with Al, the infamous internet algorithm, and into an online rabbit hole of a world brimming with heroic purpose. Also this Saturday, Girl Rilla Theatre presents Orpheus Rising, the story of Annie Max Maxwell, a queer woman who wants to commit to a healthy relationship but must first confront her troubled past, and that'll be streamed live via YouTube. Next Friday the 5th and Saturday the 6th of February, singer-songwriter Audra Sergal and close to 40 friends perform a benefit cabaret night for Talking Horse Productions called Lovers, Losers and Loners. Plus, the Mizzou New Play series will also be live-streaming from the 4th to the 6th. On February the 12th, Talking Horse Productions opens a seven-performance live-streaming run of E-Baby, a powerful story about the price of a healthy child. And from February the 25th to the 28th, Columbia Entertainment Company will live-stream Satchmo at the Waldorf, starring Richard Harris, a one-man, three-character play about Louis Armstrong, his manager Joe Glazer, and Miles Davis. So that's just <laughs> that's just the theatre schedule for February. Meanwhile, the Unbound Book Festival is live streaming author talks most Tuesdays and Thursdays, and there's a Valentine Day drive-in of Moonstruck, courtesy of Ragtag Cinema. And I feel sure there are more events that I am overlooking. And yes, of course. Everyone who is pulling out all the stops they can and volunteering their time and talents to make these events happen knows that we would all much rather be physically together. But what a fabulous outpouring of love for the arts this schedule proves. And it is so easy to love them all back. Just click on a link and buy a ticket. Then settle into a squishy, warm corner of your sofa with your favourite beverage and enjoy the show. But first, this show. I am so thrilled to welcome back to the show my guest this morning, as I have been a huge fan of hers ever since she made her Columbia debut back in 2019 at the Dismal Niche Experimental Music Festival, and then was one of the buskers at last year's True False Film Fest. You hear her music every week in the opening and closing credits of Speaking of the Arts, and this morning she is joining me from her home in Woodbridge, Virginia, to talk about her new album that is out today. Yasmin Williams, good morning. Good morning, Yasmin. 
Thank you so much for having me. I have to start off by saying I have been looking forward to you coming back on the show for ages, partly because I'm such a huge fan of your music and also Aww. because you were so kind Thank you. to let me play your song, Restless Hearts, as part of the opening and closing of the show. And so I feel like you are with us every week and I love that. And so now you really are here. So thank you so much, <laughs> Yasmin. Yeah, no problem. It's been a while. Wow. You were on the show beginning of March last year when it was True False. And then I guess I've had your music as part of the show probably since the summer last year. So, yeah, it feels like you're with us all the time. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, True False last year. That feels like 10 years ago. I know. Oh, man. I think it does to everybody. So today is the day. Urban Driftwood, your second album, is finally being launched to the world. How does it feel to have your second musical child out in the world? It feels very strange. Um, the world is strange right now, but I'm super, super excited for everyone to hear it. I'm really proud of it. Definitely shows compositional growth on my end as well as just, you know, guitar playing growth. And yeah, I'm just wasn't really expecting to release an album, to be honest. But last year I wrote most of the tracks and it just finished itself. You weren't expecting to release an album. I thought when I saw you last year, you were talking about. Yeah, I was, but I wasn't <laughs> sure like if I'd actually get it done, you know, I was kind of putting it into the air, like, I want to release an album, I'm going to release an album because I wanted to. But when COVID happened, I was not sure if I can really get everything done, you know. Right. I mean, you, I think when we met last time, you were hoping for a full release yeah. of the album. But then, of course, like you say, the world changed, COVID arrived, George Floyd was murdered, daily life as we knew it was a thing of the past. How did all that affect the remainder of your album if you wrote so much of it after all of those big events? Funnily enough, I, it, I don't know why I was saying fall release in hindsight, because I, <laughs> <laughs> I was still writing in like August or July. And obviously the fall is some months after that, so that's not going to happen. But I was kind of hoping, I, I wanted to release it last year, but the label was like, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. Just so many things influenced the album. Yeah, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of those police injustices. And just, it was kind of a reflection of how I felt about the pandemic on top of social injustice, on top of going to a few marches in D.C. myself and seeing what happened there on top of everything else and just being stuck in the house. It's an amalgamation of all of that. Do you, do you perceive a difference in the music that you wrote before March of last year and the work that you wrote subsequent to that kind of dividing line in history? You'd think there would be, but weirdly, no. Like, I wrote the song I Wonder, which is the second track on the album, in 2018 is when I finished it, late 2018. And it just kind of flows weirdly well with the rest of the tracks which I wrote this year or last year and actually one of the tracks Swift Breeze I wrote the framework for that track is something I wrote in high school and I made it work for the album and since I'm a better player now it, it just sounds better in general but yeah the album flows weirdly well even though some of the tracks were written way before 2020 I guess I was still in the same mind frame of reflection especially with I wonder yeah 2018 was a weird time too there were a lot of injustices happening then as well Right. I don't think you can really choose a year when there weren't lots of injustices exactly. happening. I think it's interesting. I mean, Restless Heart that we play on the show, you wrote that when you were in high school. I did. Too. <laughs> For my college audition. <laughs> but it's such a mature piece of music. How do you think your music, you say it's developed or progressed in this new album. What do you perceive as the differences? There's huge differences. 
For one, I include a djembe player on Urban Driftwood, the track Urban Driftwood, and I wrote a part for cello on the tune Adrift that's on the album. And yeah, I would never have thought to have done that when I released Unwind, my first album. I was very strictly a solo guitar player, and I wanted to do everything myself. And now my mindset's kind of shifting, probably due to the pandemic and being forced to be by myself. (laughs) It's kind of shifting more towards collaboration and ensemble work and just using more of my compositional skills instead of just being a one-woman band type of thing. I think you commented in the Washington Post article, which came out about you and your new album, that it was easier being solo, obviously, because you're in total control then. How mm-hmm. how has it been ceding some of that control or, or collaborating with others? Is it hard to let go? No. Well, yeah, but <laughs> it's not when I like the result. <laughs> like the recording session for Urban Drift with the track was just flawless with the drummer he basically improvised off of the really simple drum framework i sent him maybe a couple weeks prior to the studio session and that that was just flawless and it was also something that i couldn't have done myself so it's really nice to relinquish control to super talented people who can make my track sound better and give their own take on whatever it is it's easy but it's not easy to relinquish control (laughs) i'm still kind of debating that Especially in live shows when those hopefully come back. I I don't know. I may still want to do everything myself. We'll see. Hmm. Yeah, that would be interesting. Then you've got all these collaborators and then they need to be with you when you're playing live shows. Exactly. That. Yeah, that's going to be a struggle. Backing tracks, maybe. (laughs) For me, and I think probably many people, judging by the comments I see on your Facebook page, your music has an incredible sense of peace and well-being about it. It is Mm -hmm. profoundly meditative and it transports me to a place where all is at one, like I'm on the edge of a beach, under the shade of a tree, in a quiet cove with a gentle breeze. (laughs) And yet so much of this album was written as you were processing a world gone mad. How do you square that? The input and the output are so different. Yeah, Honestly, I'm not really sure what to make of it either, but I guess it just boils down to, I didn't want, like, I knew I wanted to release an album before all of 2020 started. And once 2020 happened, I didn't want the album to really sound aggressive or angry or hopeless in a way, even though, sure, that's how I was feeling sometimes, but that wouldn't really be a helpful thing to put out into the world, I think. I just wanted it to sound more okay, things are happening and let's reflect on these things or reflect on whatever things you want to reflect on. I mean, this is a piece of music about the pandemic and social injustice in some ways, but it doesn't only have to be about that, you know. You can use the music to reflect on whatever you want. But I just wanted to sound like how I was feeling, which was meditative in a way and hopeful that things would get better. And yeah, I think that comes through. Are you generally an optimistic person? No. (laughs) Um, absolutely not. I think it's only music related that this optimism shines through. <laughs> Generally in day-to-day life, no, I'm I'm pretty, I guess I'm more of a realist. I'm not really overly optimistic or pessimistic. It just kind of is what it is. But in music, I kind of take the leap of being willfully optimistic, I think, because it just sounds better and is more helpful to me. When you're just playing for yourself at home and you're feeling annoyed and angry and and disappointed in the world. 
Does the music sound different? It might not make it onto the albums or anywhere public, but... That's a great question. It doesn't. (laughs) I struggle to imagine you writing angry, annoyed music. Yeah, I really got through that phase. That was like my eighth grade, ninth grade, I think, phase. And even then it wasn't angry. It was just like I played electric guitar and used distortion and that was about the gist of the anger. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, um, most of my music, things that even don't get released sound basically have the same sonic qualities as what does get released. I guess that's just my style. I don't really know. I don't really write angry music at all. Yeah, it's just not in me, I guess. But growing up, you listened to punk and heavy metal and hard rock. So maybe you got it out of your system, like you say. I definitely did. Yeah. Like my middle school angsty phase. Yeah, that was enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) Getting through that, I don't want to go back to those days. Well, tell me about a couple of tracks on the album that are especially meaningful to you. I think the last two are really meaningful, Urban Driftwood and After the Storm. For Urban Driftwood, just because I got to work with Amadou Kuyate as the drummer on there, and he's just amazing. And I've never had drums in a track. I've always wanted to, but just never. I was always kind of, not embarrassed, but it always seemed daunting to have a drummer on one of my tracks since I do the drumming myself and I don't want to be judged <laughs> my lack of drumming skills. Yeah, that was just an amazing thing just because of how fast it was. I mean, he, I think he did about two takes, maybe three, and that was it was perfect. I've never really had a studio experience like that. I'm pretty hard on myself in the studio, so it was just nice to be able to breathe and just let someone else do their thing. For After the Storm, that one's special because I originally started writing that I don't even remember now. I think late 2019 is when I started it, but I was kind of stuck on it for like six months or so. I couldn't add another part to the the song for whatever reason. I really only had four measures (laughs) of it finished and people kept messaging me like, oh, when are you going to finish this clip you posted in November? And I'm like, it's it's like March of the next year. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Then it was May. Then it was, (laughs) but I eventually finished it. Um, after witnessing the protesting and what was happening socially, especially here in D.C., and just it inspired me to finish that particular song. I really don't know why even still, but that one's special because I'd never really experienced that before. Usually I just finish my songs when I want, but I kind of felt like I needed to finish it, and then I needed to release it on whatever platform I had, which is like, you know, social media, basically, and the album now. Well, let's take a listen to After the Storm from Yasmin Williams' new album, Urban Driftwood.
that was After the Storm from Yasmin Williams' new album, Urban Driftwood, which is being released today. So when you listen to a track like After the Storm, when you're listening to it, which you wrote, as you said, in response to the murder of George Floyd, in part, you finished it as a result of your going to protest march in, in D.C., does your music calm you or does it does it bring back memories of injustice? How do you feel inside when you listen back to that track? It's mainly calming and I'm just happy that I finished it because I honestly thought I would never finish that particular song because it just wasn't happening. But it does obviously bring back memories of what it's about, which I don't look back at and I'm sad about it, but it's I'm, it's just nice that I actually wrote something in response to that, since I've, I've never written a song in response to anything political before. And now I have an entire album about. <laughs> but it's nice to listen to, but it's also kind of somber. Right. But like I say, I don't, I don't hear somber when I listen to your music. I find peace when I listen. That's great. Yeah. To your music. So yeah, way. Good job. Thank you, Yasmin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's my goal. But for me, as the composer of it, it's still in a way somber just because I, I know how I was feeling while I was writing it. It's nice that the listeners feel peace, though. What happens when I mean, you said you, you started writing it and then you couldn't get it finished? What do, you, what do you do when your muse leaves you and you sit down and you pick up the guitar and it's just a, a blank day? How do you overcome that? I've never really believed in forcing creativity or expression. So if it's just not happening, I just put it down and then wait. And I'll just wait forever long. If it never, something never gets finished, it just never gets finished. I've never forced anything to be finished because the end result is never good when you do that. But I guess on a typical day, if I'm, I don't really try to write anything when I pick up my guitar in the morning and, you know, I'm just doodling or if there's an idea in my head, which sometimes happens, then I'll just try to get that under my fingers, but... For the most part, songs tend to, they're kind of like puzzles. I come up with thousands of little parts. Like, I don't even know how many recordings I have on my phone. Probably like 2,000, just 30-second clips or a minute-long clips of just stuff. And they kind of just piece themselves together like puzzles in a way. Is writing music and playing your full-time job, like you get up in the morning, you have your breakfast, and you go to your office, which is your guitar, and, and you start work for eight hours a day, how, how do you fit it into your day? Pre-pandemic, it was just gigging. Um, but now it's basically just, yeah, it's still a full-time job, really. Practicing has been not as often as it should be, trying to break that habit of practicing when I feel like it and actually having a routine, but I still feel like it's a full-time job, even though gigging is kind of dried up a bit, just because there's so much to do when you're a musician. I mean, emails and live streams and all of this stuff, promoting yourself. It's like eight jobs in one. Are you tired of live streams? I am. Um, I mean, it's it's like a two-way thing. So I'm happy I could stay in my house, but it's like I can set something up the night before, and it's perfect. And I go to bed, and it's a mess when I get up in the morning. Like, nothing's right. This happened on Monday when I had a live stream. I set everything up on Sunday night, wake up Monday morning, nothing works. My interface is not wanting to connect to my computer, and I'm not bad with technology at all. It's a lot easier to just go to a venue and sit down and just have the sound guy do whatever. <laughs> well, I guess, too, you miss that energy from the audience. It's not the same when you're playing through a computer screen. For sure. That's a huge difference as well. It's extremely confusing playing to no one or to my computer, you know. 
Sometimes you do live streams where you can see comments and that's nice and you can respond to people, but that's pretty rare. The bulk of the time it's just, okay guys, and this next song is, uh, I hope someone's watching, I really don't know. (laughs) You really don't know what's going on. Whereas obviously a live show, you can see everybody and interact and there's an actual energy and buzz, you know. So yeah, I do miss that quite a bit. I hear that from a lot of the actors that I talk to, that that vibing with the audience, that feeling what they're feeling and being able to reflect that in your performance is just gone. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more, I don't want to say mechanical, but I don't really know how to describe it. I guess it's just more muscle memory, whereas performing in front of an audience is just intuition. Like, I never really went to a show with a set list before, and now pretty much before every live stream I have some sort of set list prepared just to try to keep the audience's attention because I can't see their faces, you know? I can't really see how they're feeling. So in the old days, you would change the order of what you played. You would, like, take a glance at the audience and think, okay, they're ready for a big number now, or let's chill it down. Yeah, or if I'm going after someone, I would see how they react to the person before me and then kind of go off of that as well. Well, you famously taught yourself to play guitar by mastering the video game Guitar Hero, which led to you playing electric guitar for a while, abandoning the clarinet, which I hear you also played when you were uh, younger. You played rock music, but then you found your voice playing acoustic guitar using a lap tapping technique. What did you see or hear that spurred that transition? Well, I mean, the lap tapping thing branched off from the video game itself. Weirdly, I really enjoyed the tapping action that you had to use to play in the expert levels of the game. And I wanted to transfer that onto a real guitar when I became what I thought was good enough to actually do that, which was probably way too early. (laughs) (laughs) But I made it work. But yeah, that kind of came from the video game. Um, Just at first, when I was playing electric guitar, I wanted to be a quote-unquote shredder-type metal person playing super fast and playing a lot of notes and stuff. I thought that was flashy, I guess. But I cannot do that. So, at least not in a stereotypical metal kind of way. So once I switched to acoustic, I challenged myself to figure out, okay, I can't really tap the quote-unquote normal way, so is there another way I can do that? Because I still really like the sound of it, especially on acoustic where you can do other things like percussive stuff and harmonics, and it just sounds better to me. And I figured it out by lap tapping. It's just more natural for me. Did you know that was a thing? Did you think you'd made it up or did you see somebody else doing it? I didn't know it was a thing, but I was pretty sure I didn't make it up because like someone's probably done it before. And I eventually, there's a guy named Eric Mongren who has a couple songs in the lap tapping style that I really, really enjoyed. I think I first heard of him in maybe ninth or 10th grade. And I learned one of his songs, but I wasn't really too keen on learning other people's songs. I was really more focused on writing my own even back then. I'd only been playing for a few years, but it was just more fun to me. But he's probably the only, the first person that I saw doing that. So for people who haven't seen you play, can you describe what lap tapping is? Yeah. So lap tapping is setting the guitar in your lap, strings up toward the sky pretty much. And your legs are kind of anchoring the guitar so it doesn't slide off. And how I do it is I use my left hand for bass, my left, the thumb on my left hand for bass, and mainly my left hand does most of the work. And my right hand either plays harmonics or does extra tapping things or does percussive things on the body of the guitar. 
it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> There's a lot going on, but that's basically the gist of it. You just use your left hand to play melody or whatever notes you need, and your right hand does percussive stuff and adds harmonies and extra flourishes. Well, having mastered your lap tapping technique, you then added in the kalimba, which is a small wooden box with different lengths of metal tines, which you push down and release, and it makes a, a kind of a chime-like percussive sound. And then you added in your tap shoe percussion, so your tap dancing <laughs> yeah. to some degree whilst you're also <laughs> playing the guitar and the kalimba. And now you are teaching yourself the kora, which is another African instrument, which is like a cross between a harp and a lute, and apparently very, very difficult to learn. Oh, my goodness, yeah. <laughs> Can you describe the Cora for us and, and what your Cora adventures are to date? It's a mess is what it is. <laughs> I mean, it's very, okay. So the Cora is a very fragile instrument. When I first received mine, six of the strings broke basically on sight. It was very weird. I took it out of the big box it was shipped in. And I opened it up and was like, oh, wow, cool. And then just the strings just snapped. And I was like, well, I didn't know how to put them back on. So I reached out to Amadou, who I didn't know at the time, on Facebook, hoping he would respond. And he responded. He's also a, a master chorus player. And helped me put the strings on and figure that out. I was like, okay. And he told me a funny story. Apparently, the chora, if it's put into a new environment, it will have a reaction to it, almost like a person. So the strings snapped because it never been, I guess, where I was before, and it had to get used to the environment. Since then, the strings have snapped, you know, a little bit, but it's it hasn't happened in a long time now, knock on wood. So I guess it's finally used to <laughs> where it is. It's a very mystical instrument, yeah. So it's a giant calabash. Yeah. The body is a, a huge calabash, and I think what the strings are attached to is just wood. And mine, I got lucky, mine has guitar tuning pegs. Typically, a Cora has bands, kind of rubber band-looking things it uses to tune it, which is extremely difficult because you have to move them up and down, and they can easily slip off. And But it also has a double set of strings, so it's not like you imagine like a harp. Well, a, a traditional harp. Yeah, it's not a straight line, yeah. It's two sides, 10 on one side, 11 on the other side, and you alternate strings to play scales. You just alternate between your left and right hand, the two sides of the strings to play scales and chords. Is this just taking up your every waking hour right now, trying to learn the chora? It is not. Um, slow but steady wins the race for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to convince Amadou to teach me and give me lessons, but COVID is happening, so I have to wait until, I guess, when it gets a bit better. But it's very difficult to teach yourself. It's basically impossible. There's just so much history behind the instrument and so much repertoire and... Just playing basic things is difficult. Not like the guitar at all for me. 10 out of 10 on the difficulty scale, but it's just really fun. Even writing simple passages, like on Urban Driftwood, what you hear in the beginning is the chora, and that was the first thing that I came up with when I got my chora. That was basically the first thing I played for whatever reason. And it's super simple, but it's just really fun to songwrite with. I prefer using it as a songwriting tool, then I don't really plan on becoming a master chorus player or anything. It's probably not possible. But in terms of songwriting, it's very rewarding. Well, let's take a listen to that track. This is the title track from your new album. It is called Urban Driftwood. And it features Amadou Kouyate. Is that how you pronounce his name? Mm-hmm. 
and he's playing djembe, which is a traditional bare hand drum from West Africa. And you are playing the kora as well as your regular guitar. Here it is.
And that was Urban Driftwood, the title track from Yasmin Williams' new album, titled Urban Driftwood, obviously, because it's the title track, which is out today. <laughs> Talking about the Cora just a little bit, I recently came across the music of Tunde Jegede. Have you heard? His, he's a master Cora player. He's a Nigerian, a British Nigerian player. I have not, but I will check it out. Tunde Jegede. One of the things that was written about him was it says that he, a critic wrote, he wakes up areas of ourself that might be dormant. And as soon as I read that, I thought... That's Yasmin. Oh. She wakes up areas in me that are dormant the rest of the time. So your music does defy genre categorization. I know you grew up with go-go music, which I'd never heard of before, but it's really the music of DC, right? It's a regional thing, yeah. Um, Earth, Wind & Fire, which I loved. Um, you would listen to metal and punk, as I said earlier. And I wouldn't put you in the American folk category because it just doesn't seem to really fit there. You incorporate traditional African instruments. So you're kind of in a genre called Yasmin Williams, which, which must be <laughs> nice. How do you define your music? If you just met somebody in a bar and they said, tell me about your music, how do you define it? Oh, wow. Um, no clue, really. Yeah, that was a concern of mine with the second record. I wasn't sure how critics or anyone would really define the genre of it because I don't know what genre it's in either. Usually I don't really, if people ask me that, I just tell them to listen to it because I really don't know. It doesn't really fit into a box of anything. I mean, you could maybe say world music now, which I don't like that label at all, but folky sometimes, new age, maybe new age type. I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I certainly when I listen to it, I feel the same way that I do when I listen to ambient music. So it just is very floaty and very peaceful. And it makes me I can't do anything. I have to just kind of to stare into space when I listen to music. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> A quick question about time signatures, because my husband is a musician and a guitarist, and he, he definitely has a favorite time signature. So I wonder, when you incorporate so many different instruments and cultures in your work, do you have a favorite time signature? I really like seven a lot, but I don't think I've ever used it in any of my uh, songs. I like whatever works. <laughs> whatever I need to use, I like Seven is his favorite, too. So if you ever write really? a song in seven, then um, yeah. He'll be very excited about that. <laughs> People think common time 4-4 four, four is natural, but to me, 7 is really natural too. Maybe I'm just weird. Do you ever think about writing, what do they call it, non-syncopated music? Um, so like the gamelan of Indonesia? And I haven't thought about it, but I really love that stuff. I don't know. I could. Oh, you could do anything. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, I've never, I haven't thought about it for my personal stuff. I do listen to Gamelon and all that all the time. Another question from my husband. He said, ask her what her favorite guitar tuning is. Oh, open D. D-A-D, F-sharp, A-D. Yeah, that's the one I use almost exclusively, though I'm branching out now. <laughs> Another thing you got to do with this album was make your first ever music video. Tell me a little bit about the artistic decisions you took for that. Okay, so the director, Drew Hagelin, was is amazing. Um, he made most of the decisions, and I agreed with him. <laughs> well, I basically told him, okay, so I want it to be shot in either D.C. or Baltimore because I love those two cities, and there's just a lot of natural beauty there. And he's from Baltimore, so he knew a lot of in-the-cut hidden natural places that 
would work, which is how he got those really cool train shots. We basically just wanted to be free-flowing, kind of show the times we're in, but kind of not. I want it to be outside of, obviously, pandemic restrictions. So we wore masks, but it kind of worked with the concept of the video. And the video is about a lot of things. It's about suburban versus urban life. It's about me as a Black musician specifically, which is why I wanted to play in kind of a Black city, which Baltimore is, and D.C. also is. Yeah, it's about a lot of things, but I wanted it to have a nature feel to bring up the relaxing aspect of the song itself and the meditative aspects of the song. And yeah, there's a lot going on in the video, but he made it work. Having made one music video, are you now smitten and and you want to make more from the album? Yes, but I don't know if I will, because I think Urban Driftwood just lends itself to a video a lot better than the other tracks do. There is another one, I think it's the song Through the Woods that's also on your album, where maybe you filmed it for a music festival and you're sitting on some steps. Yeah, so I filmed that video for the New York Guitar Festival. That was really fun. It was really humid. It was about 100% humidity. It was ridiculously difficult to record that day. Yeah, how did that work with the tuning? It it almost didn't. Uh, (laughs) My glasses fell off from sweat. My hands were sweaty, which never happens. My guitar weirdly stayed in tune well, but I could tell that it was struggling just because it was hot. Like the guitar itself was hot. I was like, oh, I don't want glue joints to come undone. And so we kind of hurried it up. (laughs) We were only out there for maybe an hour. Well, let's listen to Through the Woods from your album, Urban Driftwood.
that was Yasmin Williams playing Through the Woods. So despite a year in quarantine, you have not only finished and released your new album, you entered a track for the NPR Tiny Desk concert, and your Spotify statistics for 2020 include over 308,000 streams <laughs> by 82,000 listeners from 80 countries. Yeah. I don't know what to make of that. That blew me. I don't know where these... (laughs) Thank you, everyone, (laughs) for listening, but (laughs) I was blown. (laughs) I didn't really release anything. I released one track in January of 2020, Dragonfly, which is also on the album. But other than that, I hadn't released anything. So it's, yeah. Do you hear from these people? Do they say how they heard about you? Sometimes I'll get Instagram comments or something, messages. But for the most part, no. It's just... Spotify sends me stats and I'm just like, how? I don't know. I'm not complaining. <laughs> it is. It's pretty amazing. So what is next for you? Well, I would love to say touring for the new album. I'm still trying to make that happen somehow. Hopefully international touring as well. But who knows? You know, you really don't know what's going to happen. So I guess live streams, even though I'm sick of them there, I'd rather do that than nothing. So <laughs> live streams, maybe some tape performances too. It's impossible to tell what's going to happen. So fingers crossed that touring starts back up maybe summer of this year or fall and we can get back out there. I mean, presumably you you still write every day. You still yeah. noodle around and record things on your phone. So, I mean, there's a at some point... I released, actually, funnily, funny you said that. I released, I think, how long is the track? Like six and a half minutes. I released a six and a half minute track on my um, social media accounts with my harp guitar that I got last year. That's like my first song I've written on harp guitar, which was really fun. So yeah, new music, definitely. And I'm working with a group that's based in NYC called Contemporaneous. They're a 23-member chamber ensemble. They do mainly orchestral stuff, but they're arranging four of my pieces that are on Urban Driftwood, which is super cool. I'll be playing with them. And yeah, I'm working on other stuff too. Wow, that is a huge and fantastic collaboration. I was talking about ensemble work before and now I'm trying to do it. And then I say that, yeah, it's happening. (laughs) I'm super excited for that. That's why you need to you need to get hold of Tunde Jegade in, in the UK because he does partly jazz but also orchestral and, and ensemble work too. Really? As oh, a, wow. As a chorus player. Yeah, I'm definitely looking him up. That's awesome. So in a perfect COVID-free world, who would you like to collaborate with and, and where would you like that collaboration to take place? The world is your oyster. Oh, my goodness. This is an impossible. Um, <laughs> well... This kind of, we kind of collaborated a little bit for a live stream we did together, but I'd like to do something with Kaki Kang. I think she's amazing and she's an extremely nice person as well. We kind of did a little duet together. Yeah, an album with her would be cool. I'm fans of so many people. Maybe something with William Tyler. He's a guitarist, kind of in the Americana folk vein, but he's incredible too. There must be lots of people who are equally fans of you as you are of them. Do people reach out to you often? Like you said, this group in New York, the uh, um, the ensemble. Do you often get calls from people saying, hey, do you want to work with me? Yeah, it's happened a lot. It's kind of started happening a lot in 2019. I noticed that people wanted to work with me and collaborate either just from simple stuff to like making a video together or, you know, full blown projects. But I'm really slow when it comes to collaborating, which kind of gets in the way at times. Like, I don't want to release anything that's just, I think, kind of not good. I take my time with a lot of these things. So it kind of leads to less collaborations, but richer collaborations, you know. But yeah, this year I definitely want to collaborate 
more. I'm also working with um, a group called Arco Musical, which is a Burimbao group. Basically seven players, they play the Brazilian instrument, the Burimbao. And I'm writing a piece for them, like a three-movement piece, which is difficult, <laughs> but really fun. Do you like best composing or playing? Oh, that's a really cool question. No one's ever asked me that before. That's cool. Oh, there you go. It depends on my mood. Well, you mean like composing for others or just in general? Either yourself and or others. Well, I think I would say 50-50 then. Because for me to play things, I'm usually playing something that I've composed. So without the composition, their playing would be a lot less. So I, yeah, 50-50. Yeah. Are you comfortable with an audience or do you have to kind of steal yourself up for sitting in front of people and playing? I've gotten more and more comfortable. You know, the more shows you do, the more comfortable you get. But I do obviously get the butterflies, you know. I kind of have to go away for like five minutes before a show a little bit just to retune my guitar 80 times and make sure that it's okay and practice a little bit. But I'm pretty comfortable in front of an audience. Weirdly, I get more nervous after shows are over, which to me makes no sense because the show is over. <laughs> and my stomach just does somersaults when I'm done. I don't know why. You've been storing it all up, just uh, holding it all in abeyance while you played. Yeah, I guess that's what it is. And also, like, I guess to see audience, you know, member reactions and to talk to people about what I just did, it can be pretty vulnerable, you know. And people gush all over you. Oh, my God, that was so amazing. Yeah, I never know how to take that. <laughs> I'm really bad at taking compliments. It's just awkward. I just say thank you, but it's... It's nice. Well, I, I do hope that you have a chance to come back and play for us in Colombia again soon, because I think you have a big fan base here. True Falls Fest especially was so fun. It was weird, because I did like eight shows in two days, the busking things. It's just such a nice town. Everyone was super friendly. I'd love to go back there, yeah, for sure. Great. My guest today has been the multi-instrumental polyrhythmic musician Yasmin Williams. Her new album, Urban Driftwood, is out today. And you can find out more about Yasmin and her new album at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. And finally, once again, I get to say directly to her, thank you, Yasmin, so much for allowing me to play your song, Restless Heart, at the opening and closing of Speaking of the Arts. It makes me happy every time I hear it. It makes me happy that you asked me. That's so nice. <laughs> I mean, that's such a cool thing. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for taking time to chat today, Yasmin. Thank you. And taking us to the end of the show today is another track from Yasmin's album. This one is called Sun Showers.
and that was Sun Showers by Yasmin Williams. That is it for another week. Thanks for indulging me and listening to a whole hour of music and chat with the guitarist, kalimba and chora playing, tap dancing songwriter Yasmin Williams. I'm such a huge fangirl. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm as well as on Spotify, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. As always, my thanks go to my guest today, Yasmin Williams, for allowing me to play her song, Restless Heart, at the beginning and end of the show, a song she wrote when she was just 16. You can find more of Yasmin's music and her new album on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more Peaks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia! Columbia!